Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 564, and I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine, everyone. I'm doing just fine. I just had too many tamales last night. (laughs) Lorraine, how you been? A great question. How have I been? Pretty darn good because my husband's birthday was this week. And we've just been like spending time doing fun stuff. We went to this beautiful place called Boscobel and and saw this beautiful, they have like a historic home and like a walk and a farmer's market. We're just doing charming Hudson Valley things right now. And it's mm. lovely. What about you, Ryan? How's it been? It's good. Yeah. Catherine finishes up camp this week and we have three weeks of no camp so it's a little bit pure chaos a little bit pure chaos but i've scheduled a couple days off for myself so that heck yeah i can spend time with my family and it's great and then she goes to school for the first time it's gonna be wild but this is the official marvel podcast where we talk about what's happening this week in marvel from games, comics, movies, TV, or whatever the heck we're excited about. And this week, we got a lot to be excited about, right, Lorraine? Yeah, this week we got on Rachel Crowell, who's the voice of Red Skull in Marvel's Wastelanders Wolverine. And we got a little show called Marvel Studio She-Hulk Attorney at Law that is finally out in the world. I'm so excited about it. We are all excited together. I love this first episode. I hope everybody has already watched it like five times. This is a small spoiler, but I'm not going to... It's nothing. Don't worry about it. The episode kicks off with Jennifer Walters talking about an element of Captain America's love life. Yep. So make sure you watch the full episode. And we know that episodes aren't over until the credits sing. (laughs) That's how it works. Yeah. Honestly, I was so tickled. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Oh, my gosh. And then I texted my coworker to have a full girl giggle moment. It was so delightful. I love this show so much. It is chef's kiss. I laughed so hard I coughed. I was like coughing. (laughs) So great. So yeah, definitely check out episode one. Watch it all the way through, all the way to the end. And then, of course, look out for episode two because episodes of Marvel Studios She-Hulk Attorney at Law drop Thursdays only on Disney Plus. And we have tons of extra content going around. There's a bunch of great articles about the She-Hulk's comic history on Marvel.com. Lots of cool inside scoops and, and expect that every week as we dive deeper into all the stuff surrounding Shulky. And it was really fun. Uh, if everybody hadn't seen it earlier this week, there was a premiere event in Hollywood for the series and everyone looked amazing. There was the cast and the crew with a lot of special guests. Shouts to comics folks like Dan Slott, who was there. Yeah. Writer on the series, Cody Ziegler, who also writes a bunch of comics for us. He had this amazing pink suit. And I was like, yes, Cody, looking amazing. So good. Mercedes Vernado, who is also known as Sasha Banks from WWE. She was on the carpet along with former WWE wrestler Naomi. Just that made me so happy just seeing them out and like doing cool stuff and being a part of things. And like the Marvel connection with wrestling is strong. (laughs) Also, if you want to go check out some clips and stuff with the cast and crew saying hello from the carpet, go check out Marvel Social. They're definitely still there on the Twitter from Monday night. So go back and check those out. Or I'm sure they're somewhere maybe on the gram or somewhere else as well. Yeah, it's always really fun to mm-hmm. to see it. And like 
the fashion was right. It was so fun. Speaking of fun, I will tell you my daughter, Catherine Grace, loves the new Marvel Studios I Am Groot shorts. Especially, Mm -hmm. she now asks specifically, she's like, Daddy, I want to watch the Groot show where he puts the cucumbers on his eyes and he has a mustache like you. And it's the (laughs) cutest thing. There's one episode called Groot Takes a Bath. And he takes this like mud bath and he puts cucumbers on his eyes and he grows his hair out or his his uh, leaves. Oh, yeah. Out. He keeps growing like little leaves in different yeah. ways, in different haircuts. Yeah. There's one where he grows out and he looks like a pro wrestler with a big mustache. And that's the one she thinks <laughs> I am. And it's really cute. They're so good. They're so funny. They're so enjoyable. They're so easy to watch. Mm-hmm. And you watch all five shorts streaming exclusively on Disney Plus right now. They're brand spanking new. So go enjoy them. It follows our little baby Groot as he explores the galaxy and he gets into lots of trouble, just has fun being him. We love our little Groot. And of course, there are some Marvel must-haves that are now available at marvel.com slash must-haves that feature a bunch of cute Groot. There's shirts and headbands and phone cases and lots more. As I said, you can go over to marvel.com slash must-haves. I like the little bath time phone case. Mm. He's like in the little puddle thing that he's in it's very cute but you know Mm. Groot obviously has a very limited vocabulary he doesn't have a lot to say well he has a lot to say but he can only say three words I am Groot did trees talk you know what Lorraine I think there may be some evidence of trees communicating and I think we can even talk to someone who knows about all this. We should get on the twin phone or maybe I'll just get on the twin phone. You take a quick breather, come back and tell me about some cool stuff that's happening with Marvel games after that. I'm going to call our pal Peter over in Germany. He is the author of The Hidden Life of Trees, and uh, he knows a couple things about trees. All right, let's call Peter right now. Beep, boop, 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 Peter's phone. (laughs) Sir, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name is Peter Wohleben. Yeah, that's a German name. And I'm a forester and author. And I wrote a book about trees. What is it that makes you love trees so much? Was there something early on that connected you to trees? And how often are you called a tree hugger? (laughs) As a child, I was more connected to animals because, yeah, of course, they move, they are fast, and trees are around about 10,000 times slower than we, so there's a little connection problem. But I started as a forester and then made guided tours through the forest, and then I recognized that trees are something like plant elephants. They are very big They have a long memory, they are very social, they are wonderful, and they make mistakes. It's funny to watch them to make mistakes, but these mistakes are very slow, of course, and it takes days to weeks to months and sometimes even years to see, oh, wow, they make a different decision, but it takes a long time for them to turn around and and make something different. So um, you need a lot of time, and that's wonderful that fits perfectly in nowadays because we all need to calm a little bit down slow down from time to time and trees are perfect in teaching this of course we have Groot in the marvel universe and while technically Groot is a floral colossus sort of an alien creature Groot is in many ways kind of like a tree and he talks he speaks using just three words i am Groot how do trees in our world communicate a little bit more complicated and they have much more words and sentences. They communicate in different ways. They communicate with smells, for example. And even we can smell it when, for example, conifers are stressed on hot summer days. We have this aromatic little sweet smell. So this means stress. This means 
attention, bark beetle attack, or attention, a heavy draught is approaching. So all we know is about yeah, stress communication. Oak trees, for example, are even able to call birds if they are attacked by little caterpillars. Then they call birds to get rid of those caterpillars. The chemical communication is depending on wind. And when you are on the wrong side of the forest, you don't get any news. And therefore, we have the wood wide web. That means through the root system, through the fungi filaments, there are emails sent, uh, tree mails, sorry, tree mails <laughs> sent from tree to tree. But through the wood wide web, it may take hours and days. A single signal, which needs milliseconds in our body, needs through the fungi filaments. 20 hours. So that are very slow tree males, but they will reach every tree in the forest. I love the wood wide web yeah. and tree males. Those are terrific. So you say they one way to communicate is through the smells that they emit. Have you ever walked into a forest and be like, something is going on? Like you can smell something coming from the trees? No, but you can measure it. Uh, you can measure your blood pressure. And our body is a perfect tree meter. Let's say it in a tree happiness meter. If trees are happy and the forest is intact, your blood pressure sink. And conscious, you will say, wow, I'm relaxing. It's a lovely, nice place. And in reality, your body is reacting on, on tree communication with happy trees. Are you able to communicate back? Are we as humans able to find a way to communicate back to them and sort of be a part of the wood wide web? I don't think so. I'm not able to. Perhaps some people think they are able to, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I would be happy to do so. I think because trees are around about 10,000 times slower than we, you need to talk very, very slow to trees. <laughs> and I'm not able to do this. To be honest, one of my biggest wishes upon trees for the future is to have a decoder. And that should be really possible to have a decoder, a smell decoder. And uh, then you can read, ah, I'm happy or I'm angry. Don't walk on my feet or whatsoever. So I don't need to talk back to trees, but I would be happy if I could understand more than just some sentence. I hope you can get that tree decoder at some point. Before we let you go, tell us a little bit about your book, The Hidden Life of Trees, what they feel, how they communicate. Yeah, um, uh, the book was written because my wife begged for years, please write down what you tell on your guided tours. And I refused for years. And then one day I sat down and, and wrote this book. And the book is a written guided tour through the forest. And I explain all forest wonders from tree school to the dangers through the wonders on trees, how tree memory works, what trees are able to talk to each other and things like that. And uh, there are many little chapters so uh, that you don't have to read the complete book in once, but in very little steps as you go through a forest. Very cool. Thank you very much, Peter. I appreciate all of your tree puns and your tree passion. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and best greetings to Groot. <laughs> <laughs> I am Groot. <laughs> wow, I learned something. I was busy getting a coffee, but that was very interesting. Yeah, it was great. Peter was wonderful. And his latest book, which was released last year, is called The Heartbeat of Trees, Embracing Our Ancient Bond with Forests and Nature. Give it a little look-see if you're into trees. 
All right, there is going to be a special game showcase that's live from D23 Expo presented by Visa. And Disney is going to be streaming the showcase to fans worldwide on Friday, September 9th at 1 p.m. Pacific time. So mark your calendars. You can tune into the showcase and it's going to be hosted by Kind of Funny's Blessing Adioye Jr., And in addition to some all-new announcements, fans can expect some new reveals as well from a bunch of anticipated games like Marvel's Midnight Suns, obviously, which we are so excited about coming in the future, and a sneak peek at the upcoming Marvel Ensemble game for Skydance New Media. So that's going to be very exciting. And hey, if you're a Twitch streamer and you're interested in co-streaming the showcase with us on your Twitch, you can get involved. Go over to marvel.com to see the full details on how to do it. But basically, the Marvel Twitch starts at 1 p.m., as I mentioned, on the 9th. And you can just co-stream the live broadcast from Marvel's official Twitch channel. So go check out how to do it and all the content sharing guidelines and all that jazz over on marvel.com. There's a full article with how-tos there. But that's so cool and so fun. I love that they're doing that. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm very excited. I should be at D23 Expo. So if you're going to be there, let me know. It's very exciting. Now, the info about the showcase and the Marvel side of things mentioned Marvel's Midnight Suns and that new Marvel ensemble game from Skydance New Media. I'm super excited because sort of the woman who's creatively behind that project is this woman named Amy Hennig, who has worked on the Uncharted games, and she's done some amazing stuff. She's a brilliant creator and storyteller. So the bit that I know about the game is really cool. I'm excited for everybody to get more and more information about that. So stay tuned for all that stuff. It's going to be real cool, y'all. Yeah. You know what else is cool? Toys, 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 toys. Ooh, so recently Hasbro unveiled a whole bunch of new Marvel Legends series figures. The lot that they showed off was inspired by Marvel Studios' Disney Plus original series. So we've got stuff from Marvel Studios' WandaVision, Loki, and What If, and we get a really cool build-a-figure of Khonshu inspired by Marvel Studios' Moon Knight. So we're getting a zombie Iron Man, Agent Jimmy Woo, Classic Loki, Zombie Scarlet Witch, He Who Remains, Howard the Duck, uh. and a Red Skull. It's super duper cool. I'm excited for these. They do good stuff. There's just this thing that every time anyone mentions Howard the Duck, I'm immediately transported to my childhood to a sick day where I am watching the Howard the Duck movie over and over and over again for no reason, being terrified of the monster at the end. Wow. All right, moving on. Mighty Thor is making her way over for a limited time to Avengers Campus at Disneyland Paris. We all love Jane Foster, a.k.a. Mighty Thor, and she's going to be roaming the grounds of Avengers Campus, partnering up with Thor and encountering recruits. I've seen a shocking amount of people I know head over to Disneyland Paris right now. And also a very fun thing, Disney's Hotel New York, The Art of Marvel, has a bunch of art up for my book, Marvel Powers of a Girl, Sweet. by the ever-incredible Alice X. Zhang. She did all the artwork, obviously. Not me. <laughs> I mm-hmm. can't draw. But it was really cool to see that a bunch of her artwork is hung up in like a whole gallery wall. It was really neat. Super, super cool. 
also cool was the information that we got this week that Thor and Loki Midgard Family Mayhem is coming. And this is a new book coming from Chronicle Books, April 18th, 2023, from Eisner Award winning author Jeffrey Brown. I friggin' love Jeffrey Brown so, so much. You may know Jeffrey Brown from some of his Star Wars books like Darth Vader and Son and Vader's Little Princess. These are so cute, these little books. But he's done a ton of books. He's like diary comic stories, tons of stuff over the years. I have two pieces of original art from Jeffrey. One of them is a drawing of me and my wife Elizabeth and our cats. Jeffrey Brown does amazing stuff. So this is going to be like a really cute reimagining of Odin and Freya taking their children, Thor and Loki, to their favorite realm, Midgard aka earth so the title midgard family mayhem is very apt it's going to be super cool he's a ding dang delight yeah his work is so enjoyable i'm definitely looking forward to that in april so ryan what's uh what's going on with the marvel's pull list podcast this week Oh what, boy. what are your comic picks? Some really great stuff this week. From the comic pick side, Avengers 1 million BC, number one, which sheds a Long huge, time coming. Yeah, long <laughs> time coming. Sheds a whole lot of light on Thor's origins and how the Phoenix factors into it. And that's a really cool story. Ms. Marvel and Moon Knight, number one, and X-Men, number 13. And we were joined by guest host Anthony Carboni on this episode. Anthony is just the best. You may know him from a Star Wars show that used to run on Lucasfilm channels. He does a ton of stuff with Star Wars. He has his own podcast. He's been a friend for a long time. So it was fun to just talk comics with him professionally as opposed to just like seeing him at random events and stuff. So he was great. And then we did a reading club with our pal writer Dan Slott talking about She-Hulk number four, which is a classic She-Hulk Spidey story that he wrote back in 2005-ish, 2004, 2005. So much fun talking with Dan. We get into all kinds of stuff, a lot of excitement about She-Hulk, a lot of talk about Spidey stuff, both past, present, and future for Dan Slott. So it's a big episode this week. And not only that, we are in the midst of our Spider-Man month over on Marvel's Pull List. So we released a special bonus episode with legendary Marvel artist Mark Bagley discussing the death of Gwen Stacy. I'd never talked to Mark before. I want to talk to him every day for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. He's got a great voice. So great. He's ridiculous. He is so funny. He is so foul mouth and just over the top in the best way possible. I felt a kinship to him and also one of the greatest Marvel Comics artists of all time. So we had a really great conversation. Check both of those episodes out over on Marvel's pull list. You can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. So, yeah, we just had Dan Slott on Marvel's pull list. And one of the things that Dan just finished was an amazing run on Fantastic Four. Four years of really great FF stories. Just finishing it up now. Or Fantastic Four. Well, not for him, but Lorraine, we got news of the new Fantastic Four creative team. We have one of my favorites, Ryan North, who, of course, everyone knows from the Unbeatable Squirrel Girl Eisner Award winning run, as well as our phenomenal Marvel Squirrel Girl, the Unbeatable Radio Show podcast, writing Fantastic Four number one, along with art by Yvonne Coelho and a beautiful cover by Alex Ross, which you can check out over on Marvel.com, as well as a new EW article. And the big headline for this is, Whatever happened to the Fantastic Mm -hmm. Four? Yeah. I think this team is going to be amazing. Also, Mm -hmm. I got to give incredible shout out and props to Alex Ross. These covers are beautiful. Yeah. Alex's color work 
of late. There's a Fantastic Four graphic novel called Full Circle that is coming out or has just come out from Abrams' new Marvel Arts line. It's like a partnership between Marvel Comics and Abrams, the publishing group. And the colors in this are stunning. And he does more really amazing color work on these covers for FF. So everything about this is screaming Hell yeah, give it to me, put it in my face, and let it burn my face to pieces. <laughs> and this is really exciting because it's the start of a new era for Fantastic Four, and they're going to get in a ton of trouble. The story really kicks off where something has gone terribly awry in New York, and the thing and Alicia Masters are traveling across America to escape it. But when they stop in a small town for the night, they wake up in the morning before they've arrived, and they find themselves caught in a time loop, and it's in a time before they were born. So it's going to be a really fun adventure. I'm really excited to see what Ryan does with the Fantastic Four and, of course, Yvonne's beautiful work on it. Look out for that coming in November. All right, let's dive into our interview right now because we have a wonderful guest. I got to speak with Rachel Growl, who voices Red Skull in Marvel's Wastelanders Wolverine, which is recently wrapped up so you can listen to all episodes now. Rachel, super duper terrific in the series, though. If you haven't listened, if you don't know, if you haven't heard us talk about it for the last two months, the idea is that 30 years ago, supervillains won. They've killed the Avengers, the X-Men, and pretty much nearly every other superhero. So when that happened, the Red Skull assumed the office of President of the United States, which that sucks for almost everybody. Wolverine vows to transport Sophia, who's a young mutant, in hiding to the former X-Men Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers. So there's all that going on with Wolverine. But then the Red Skull escalates anti-mutant sentiment, and it's like super duper dangerous. Wolverine has to then face Red Skull and all of Red Skull's gnarly allies head on. It's a, a big old brouhaha. Here's a preview right now. And so Christmas Eve felt like a perfectly natural time to reflect upon how far we've come. 30 years of putting humans first and eliminating the disgusting plague of mutant kind. Go home, you freak! So he's not going to give me back my job that was stolen by another damn mutant. Who are you? Just another damn mutant. Wolverine. The Wolverine. You're supposed to be dead. You know what he did to the X-Men? How could Logan do something so terrible? You ever seen that berserk side of Wolverine? How do I kill the beast? You cannot kill it. You are Wolverine. You can only choose how to live it. I want to live like a man. Then start living like one. So given the whole world wants me dead right about now, it seems like a right time to take on a suicide mission. I want to take on Red Skull. I'm in. Let's do this! What's the plan? Plan? (laughs) So again, as I mentioned... Marvel's Wastelanders, Wolverine, all episodes are out now wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can get behind-the-scenes content on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. Rachel got to play the Red Skull in this wonderfully. And in this interview, we got to talk about what it's like to play villains, why she thinks Marvel is the modern-day Shakespeare. There's a lot of really interesting Shakespeare conversation that I don't have the full understanding for, but Rachel was really great in explaining it and talking about it. So I dig it. I really, really dig it. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Hello, Rachel. Welcome to This Week in Marvel. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. The Red Skull in my head is like this dripping, evil, pure, like venomous, but just like smiling and terrifying. And I've got that vibe from your, yeah. From your skull. Yeah, so. no, I kind of sort of was thinking like this is... Uh... It was interesting to sort of explore the idea of you're already a terrible person and then you win and then you're in power for a really long time. What does that do, right? How does that manifest itself? And, you know, I'll be very honest, one of my all-time favorite performances in the whole world is Ray Fine in Schindler's List as the Nazi commandant Amangok because he's terrifying in it in part because he shows some humanity, which, you know, makes you almost feel sorry for the Nazi for a second. And that has always stuck with me about villains, is that they're more rounded than just their villainy. And with Red Skull, I kept thinking, he enjoys a lot of these things, right? There's pure enjoyment in this. Scenes in the White House, they're, I mean, they're awful, but they're also funny in that sort of sickening, wow, this is what it'd be like if somebody terrible was in power for a long time. Yeah. We're, of course, going to get deeper into uh, all about Red Skull. But first, I, I want to start off by asking, what's your Marvel origin story? How did you first encounter Marvel characters, stories? Was it, you know, a comic book? Was it a movie? Was it sort of not even really in your purview? What was it for you? My wife is a huge fan. But I do remember being a kid and sort of thinking the Fantastic Four were pretty cool. And then sort of paying attention to like Spider-Man and the Avengers. And then I kind of fell out of it until the MCU sort of hit. And with my wife dragging me to all the films, I've really sort of, and I say that with a tongue in cheek because I've enjoyed them quite a lot. And the quality of characterization in the films really struck me. And I'm a person who does a lot of Shakespeare. I'm primarily a theater actor. And I kind of have been struck over these last few years of the parallels between sort of the heightened sense of Shakespeare. It has an analog in the Marvel Universe, right? The stakes are huge and personalities are larger than life. And that's been kind of the way that I've gotten into it, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. Stan Lee famously was very much a literary-minded man, and Shakespeare was a big influence on him. A lot of, he wanted to, you know, write the big famous novel, and, and so he applied his craft into making comics and making them sort of the way he wanted them, which was bringing a lot of drama and Shakespearean, you know, flair to things. So it makes perfect sense that we start to see it, and it really gets heightened as we get these these movies and TV shows. Oh, totally. That doesn't surprise me to hear about Stan Lee at all. That sort of comes through in the characters that he's created. They're deeply memorable in the way that Shakespeare created deeply memorable characters. I totally think these stories will last for a very long time. They tap into something basic. Like all of the great art is tapping into something basic. You know, Shakespeare, Harold Bloom famously called Shakespeare's stuff the invention of the human. In this idea that Shakespeare was giving voice to a lot of things that had never been given voice to, inner monologues and doubt and the price of power and what does heroism mean, what does villainy mean. And there's a reason why we still do those plays. And I don't think it's really going out on a limb to say that 
the Marvel Universe, these characters strike something similar in the sense that they get at something basic. The urge to be a hero, the urge to do good, the conflictedness of being bad, the gray area between good and bad. Marvel Universe that explores all of those things. So there really is kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. Obviously, they're different. But in terms of storytelling and impetus toward getting at something deeper than just plot, well, plot is obviously a big thing. It's not the only thing. There's more and more interest in, in finding out who these people are rather than, you know, cardboard characters that take us from scene one to scene two to scene three. Yeah. It's also that relatability, right? There's something you think of Spider-Man. He's so relatable in that's one of the many reasons why people attach to them. But Shakespeare's stories and Shakespeare's characters, while they are not contemporaneous, they were written hundreds of years ago, there is a relatability that has helped them carry over and, and make them something that we can read now and we can see you know, performances of and see ourselves within these worlds very easily. And I think that's a, another parallel between the two. Oh, absolutely. I think of like, you know, Richard III, who is probably one of the greatest written villains of all time. And yet he's so layered and so deep that you can understand a certain amount of his villainy. Or Romeo and Juliet. I mean, who hasn't fallen in love tragically? Maybe not that tragically, but <laughs> tragically, right? Or even the comedies, Twelfth Night or As You Like It, the sort of like, oh, I'm a young woman and I don't have power. So you know what? I'll pretend to be a guy and I'll get some power. They're all relatable in that same way. You know, I can see parallels between Captain America and the Henry we see in Henry V, a very sort of forthright heroic character that you want to follow, right? Not just because he's the king, but because you believe in his cause, he makes you feel like you're doing the right thing. And to me, that's, you know, one of the things that's fascinating watching the Marvel Universe blow up these last 20 years is sort of underneath it all, sort of like Shakespeare's still laughing somewhere. These stories, they're universal and they keep going. And we just keep finding new ways to put new types of clothes and things on top of them. But at their heart, there's still these stories about people striving and failing and falling in love and doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. I find that really fascinating and kind of heartening, to be honest with you. The more that we can get into how these characters are people, the longer shelf life we're giving them, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Thinking about, you know, Red Skull and the what and who he is and your deep knowledge and love of Shakespeare. Do you think there's a, a Shakespeare work where Red Skull would fit in? Well, obviously, <laughs> you know, it's a different time, but he's such a evil and, and, and so vile. Yes, I can see him being totally at home in the world of Titus Andronicus, which is like just full of blood and body parts and horror. I don't know that he would last in the Richard III world, but he definitely would understand what's going on there. There's something delightful about Red Skull being the evil analog of Captain America. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the joys of playing it was like, well, let's revel in this. But also like the sheer command just the sense of you will do what I say and you'll do it right now. There is something really enjoyable about finding a way to play with both of those things, right? The sort of glee, but also the sheer straight up, you will do this. Crossbones, go do this right now. 
And I found that fascinating. And the writing, Jenny Turner Hall, she wrote just a delightful script. Episode three, I have this giant monologue that is really one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. Because the writing itself was so good that I could find places to naturally sort of 180 between, oh, yeah, no, very happy, <laughs> to uh, kill everyone. <laughs> I really enjoy villains. I think they're way more fun to play than heroes as a general rule, partly because you get to do things that in real life you would never get to do, nor should you even want to do them. But there's something delightful about letting your inner darkness out a little bit. As an actor, that's sort of how I think of it. And I, I seem to have been playing a lot of bad people lately. I'm afraid that I'm going to be sort of uh, typecast as a good villain person. But, you know, it doesn't hurt Robert Patrick none. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> there are worse things. And also, I, I think it's probably a bit of catharsis. You know, to what you're talking about is like getting out both for you, for Jenny Turner Hall. Like, I know I was reading some writer talking about writing this great villain character and, and how they were like, this helped me not strangle my cat when I was so angry during the, you know, whatever time period in their life. It's like, this is a release, both for a performer, for the creator in every way. And also, I think for us as as those who listen, who read, who watch, can get a little bit out by seeing this. And it's it's helpful. No, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, uh, from an audience point of view, a really well done villain does so many interesting things to the audience because, you know, the audacity of a really well done villain is kind of appealing. Like there's something slightly appealing about the bad people who are actually just, wow, you're awful. Because I think we all have within us a certain amount of dark and light, right? And you can't just bottle up one to the exclusion of the other. As a performer, playing bad people is obviously deeply cathartic for me. I have I have a place to put my rage at the world. But as an audience member, when I get a really good villain, I get a kind of catharsis as well in that I can kind of go, wow, I really kind of enjoyed how awful that character was. Does that mean anything about me? Maybe not. <laughs> but I have to think about that for a second, right? I think we yeah. all would love to be the heroes of our stories. But I think, you know... Sometimes we're not. We're the villains in our stories. You know, you need a good villain. Gotta have a good villain. Um, prior to getting this job and, and doing the performances, had you encountered Red Skull much? Was it just going to the movies with your wife? What was it for you? Captain America. That was my, yeah. my sum total knowledge of Red Skull at that point in time. And I made sure when I got this gig that I didn't watch it because I didn't. I love Hugo Weaving and I am a natural mimic. And I absolutely did not want to do Hugo Weaving. I wanted to do my take on it. It also helps that I'm enough of a history buff that I kind of went back and did the origin story. How did Red Skull come about? But all of that World War II stuff as a kid growing up, man, World War II was like this most fascinating topic. And understanding, you know, how Nazism could take over and how it could like flourish it was all very fascinating to me as a younger person because it was like this very clear example that like, you know, just 50, 60 years ago, well, at this point, much longer, 80 years ago, you know, there was this genuine evil on the land, right? And so it was kind of a combination of remembering that Red Skull is literally a red skull, which I also thought was delightful and suggests character, right? If you already look like 
a monster, you might as well act like one. Mm. But also tying it in with that historical sense. And I love that her script makes uh, reference to World War II. Before we, we keep rolling on, I'm curious, what's your uh, your wife's favorite Marvel movie? And two, what was her reaction when you were like, I got a gig with Marvel? <laughs> uh, I would say probably the Loki series, actually, because she just is team Loki all the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it helps that Tom Hiddleston does a wonderful job with that character, but also that's a great example of that gray area that Marvel excels in because sometimes Loki does things good. So yeah, she's a huge fan of that. (laughs) And when I got this, she just sort of looked at me and was like, okay, uh, no. So what really happened? And I'm like, no doll, I really, I'm going to be in a Marvel thing. She was blown away. She's so over the moon about it and tells her now that we can tell people it's happening. She tells everybody, my wife's in Marvel. She plays a bad Nazi. <laughs> and it's sort of, <laughs> it's a delight to hear her say that. It's also a little bit of cringe, but it's a delight. And, you know, like the first day I recorded, I recorded here at home from my studio at home. And we had to start really early in the morning because Clark Peters was in London and I had a scene with him. And she was asleep, which is just the room over. And I am start screaming and yelling and doing Red Skull stuff. And she said she woke up from dreams of gas masks and bombs <laughs> and all this God. terrible stuff. And she's like, oh, right. That's just my wife being a Nazi in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> that old story. You know, that old That's standby. Every couple yeah. has to deal with it. <laughs> so the remote recording, you know, what was that like? How did that affect your process from what you're you're used to? Um, I had sort of grown accustomed to it. I think most actors during the pandemic became accustomed with some form of Zoom acting. A lot of us did a play or did something. For me, it didn't actually change all that much because I just respond to the script and that's my in and that's how I work. And a whole bunch of what acting is, is reacting. And that means listening. And so you know, the basic components of a performance didn't change in any way. I had people I was talking to. I had people who were talking to me. And so it was a kind of a natural extension. It was weird to be doing it in my home office. But even that at some point, I think we all just got really accustomed to doing a lot of things in our home office. So it wasn't really that challenging. It was more a new opportunity, right? A way to do my art in a new way even though this is like one of the oldest artistic formats we've got since the advent of radio, which I I just think it's fantastic that the radio play has finally made a comeback. Yeah. And it's giving it to a wider audience now and they can listen to it anywhere. And, you know, the great sound design. Oh, the sound design is tremendous because it's, uh, man, the sound effects, the sound world, the environment, it makes it so much easier to slip into the world. Even just Mm -hmm. the pop of a bottle of a soda can or the closing of a door, all of those little things get magnified. I mean, it's the same as true in theater or film or TV. Sound is fully 50% of the experience. But a thing like this, it's 100% of the experience. And so it was really gratifying to listen to this and just to hear how badass it sounds. Yeah, for sure. 
you talked a little bit about going and, you know, digging into some of the history behind Red Skull and those things. In what other ways did you prepare for this? Obviously, you said you didn't want to look at the film and didn't want that in your brain. Well, are there other performances that you were thinking of? Are there more recent comics or what else helped you develop that Red Skull, that accent, that specific lilt and feel? Well, I'll go back to Ray Fiennes and Schindler's List as for one, because there there's a certain playfulness to the way he does certain things that's horrifying. And yet almost in spite of myself, I'm charmed. And I wanted to make sure it had that flavor. And it was there in the writing, you know, that there'd be like, oh, yeah, no, hey, welcome to the White House, everyone, which is, you know, happy German. And so as opposed to, we would kill you all, that sort of thing. And I, I wanted to make sure that I paid attention to those 180s or those two flip sides because it makes the character deeper. And I think it makes him more frightening that he could be like, you know, oh, yeah, nah, hello. You know, which is sort of like sounds so nice and friendly. And I like finding those kinds of tones, especially with villains. Any chance that I get that I can find a way to slip into the audience's mind and go, you know, he's not all bad. He's not all bad. Right. There's a joy to that. And I literally have just been playing a bunch of terrible people in a new play called Between Two Knees by the 1491s. It's uh, Sterling Harjo of Reservation Dogs fame and stuff like that. And it's a black comedy about Native American people. And I'm the only white person in the cast and I play all the bad white people. And, you know, it's a story of Native Americans in the United States. You're going to have white people doing terrible things. You can't tell the story otherwise. And it's a really interesting experience to be up on stage in front of 400 people and feeling them go, oh, my God, you're so awful. That is really powerful, actually, yeah. and makes it more fun for me to do. So in terms of like, I didn't do any more specific research on anything except for reading the script over and over and over again and finding those places where I could, you know, go to 11 and then bring it back to two and then bring it to 15, right? Screw 11, we're going to 15. And finding those moments is what made, that was from my biggest process, was where is Red Skull slippery nice? Where is Red Skull completely unhinged? I mean, there were a couple of moments I remember looking at my windshield on my mic after a certain scene and it was just covered with spit because I had literally just kind of lost it and was just completely frothing at the mouth. And I thought, well, A, this is gross, but B, well done you. You actually went all the way there. Yeah. <laughs> the worse the villain is, the more invested you are in seeing the villain get taken down at some level, right? And so when you get the heel turn, the villain turn, you want to go for it as much as possible. You want, you want the audience to hate you. You want the audience to be rooting against you. Because if they are... You're doing it right. Yep. 100%. How long were you working on this project? Like, what was the sort of total recording time? Well, it's funny. There's two answers to this. So when we did the actual recording, I did two days to cover all of my stuff. But Jenny, in June of 2021, I had worked with her previously on another scripted podcast earlier that year and impressed her enough that she wrote me in June and was like, hey... I'm doing some table reads for a project and I'd love if you come in and would read the villain. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not doing anything. I just broke my foot. I'm not going anywhere. 
And so she goes, okay, I'll, I'll send you the scripts. And that's when I went, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is, wait, Marvel? What? I'm going to, what? I'm red? What? You know, you have that moment because this is easily the biggest profile gig I've ever had. And I was just through the moon thrilled, even if it meant I was just going to be doing these table reads. So I did the first four episode table read, which is basically where she gathered a bunch of actors and we read the scripts out loud which for a writer-director is crucial because that lets you know what works, what doesn't work, how does it sound, all of that sort of thing. And she had encouraged me to just go for it. And so I love dialects, and I've been doing dialects since I was a kid, driving my parents crazy with them. And I've always had a German accent in the back pocket. I've just never really had a chance to use it. And so I talked to her about that. I was like, uh, you know, how stereotypical do we want to go? And she was like, well, I think, Kind of some, because this is actually somebody from the turn, you know, from quite a long time ago. So this is not like some modern German who just showed up. And so my for me, the fun was finding out how much of the German dialect I could play with and what would be like a silly amount and what was the proper amount and what was not enough. And she also encouraged me to think of Red Skull as sort of pan-European as well in the dialect thing. So that I could kind of like eh, steal a sound change here or an inflection here from some other continent language. Hmm. But mostly I just stuck with German. The, the sound changes, W's being V's, all of that sort of stuff. I was like, there's so much to do right here with this. That was actually really fun. After the second day of taping, I got in the car and my, I kept doing the German accent. And she's like, I'm not going to dinner with you. We're not going out for drinks if you keep doing that voice. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, doll. I, you know, I cannot help it. <laughs> it's got to be fun. But so you, you don't have to, you didn't necessarily have to sit with this character for terribly long. But you are, as you said, doing some really other terrible characters. Does that sit with you? You know, is like the longer you're with these characters who have to do things, say things that are completely antithetical to your belief system, to who you are as a person. How does it feel to get into that character? But then also, like, is there a feeling of like letting it go when you're done? For the most part, no, because I, you know, it's pretend. And I'm very firmly that acting really is just a chance to be five years old in the sandbox with the little green army men again. That's really what it is. But um, in this play, Between Two Knees, one of my characters is a priest who runs an Indian boarding school. And I think people are becoming more and more aware how horrific the boarding school were for indigenous people. And that character sometimes, because there's nothing good about that priest, and that character, sometimes I feel like I want to take a shower afterwards. And part of it's because I'm, you know, in this show, I'm surrounded by Native people. I've learned so much that it's actually, it's close enough at home that I feel it. Something like Red Skull is to me just like Halloween for actors, right? That's just an amazing opportunity to just really go somewhere deep and dark, but it's not me. It's not even close, but the... uh the boarding school priest is one of those characters that sometimes I very much, yeah, want to take a shower afterwards because you sometimes if you're close enough to this, the trauma of a thing, it becomes harder to shake off. It becomes harder to think of it as just a sandbox with green army men. It's harder in some ways. But for the most part, I set them aside. It's a chance to let out 
my darkness in this very healthy, safe way. And I look at it as such. And as I said before, I think, you know, villains are actually ridiculously interesting to play. So if anything, I'm usually a little bit disappointed that it's over with because it was so much fun to do. Yeah. I was watching a video, little feature on you. And, you know, in it, you said that uh, after transitioning, you kind of felt like you would have to give up acting. I think you stopped for like 13 years. years. Yeah. But, you know, now you're flourishing, doing all these different projects, playing characters that are trans and cis, female, male. How, at this point, has your perspective changed on, on acting and, and what you love to do? Well, I transitioned in the early aughts. And that really, really feels like, you know, 100 million years ago in terms of visibility, acceptance, rights. Obviously, there's an enormous way to go. You know, what with trans people being the rights punching bag du jour right now. But when I quit, I had a pretty successful off-Broadway career. And I made a deal with the universe. This is sort of my story. is I was like, you know, if I can have a decent quality of life, you can have my acting career. I'm creative enough. I'll find some other outlet. And for the most part, the universe obliged. And for quite a long time, I thought of myself as retired as opposed to, oh, I can't act because there are no roles for me. Now, granted, that was true then. But by saying I was retired, it gave me agency over the decision. Like it was something I could own as opposed to something that happened to me. And in 2016, just kind of really out of nowhere, my wife was consulting on this script and the director was running out of options and I was upset at my job. So I just said, sure, I'll audition. Five days later, I had the lead in an indie film. And three weeks after that, I was on set in San Diego and they were yelling action. And I literally was like, well, I guess I'm back. I guess I can do this again. I said, the world has changed enough that there are opportunities for me. And this go round, well, A, you know, I played a bunch of men off Broadway. I mean, I was a young leading man at the time. So the idea of being on stage playing men using my old voice that wasn't like particularly scary. And then I started to think, you know, to me, this is funny, especially because I'm on this Marvel show. You know, I joke with people that like my mutant superpower is I can play in both genders happily and comfortably. And I'm pretty OK with that power, actually. And I think it's interesting for audiences as well to have to kind of like deal with the cognitive dissonance of seeing the name Rachel and then going, but that doesn't sound or that doesn't look like a Rachel. And then they have to go, well, I don't know. And then they're like, oh, but wow, that was a great performance. And I've had some of the most interesting, insightful conversations with strangers who were just like, I never imagined what I just saw. I never imagined that I would see someone who now I look at you and I see a woman. I hear you. I see her a woman. And yet 20 minutes ago, you were this horrible ass in Shakespeare's Henry V. And I've got to work this out. And I'm enough of a punk from old days to think that's awesome, right? That there's a, a little bit of poke, 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 poke. Does that bother you? Does that bother you? Does this bother you? And so now I think it's a kind of an enormous blessing that I seem to have inadvertently carved out a niche for myself that says to casting directors and other people, I can play anything, anything you know, just give me a shot. And there's something delightful about that. And I feel like, you know, with my voice, my voice can go very deep, as you can hear in the show. And for a while, I was hesitant because I think a lot of trans women are like, oh, my God, I don't, 
you know, the voice can be a very tricky thing for a lot of trans people. And yet I was given this amazing instrument and I decided it would be stupid of me not to use my instrument or to only use like the top, you know, octave of my instrument when I can do so much with it. And on some level, I think that's the most delightful thing about this is now I've I've given myself freedom and permission to use the entirety of my instrument. And I'm, I'm really actually genuinely thrilled by that. I think that's actually really, really cool because it's there. People always used to say, my God, your voice. And now I get to, you know, use it again and people can still go, my God, your voice, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's a delight because it's me. It's who I am. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I identify she, hers, all that. But, you know, I do have experience in the world as a dude and I remember it and I'm unafraid to sort of like dredge that stuff up if it's useful for a character. And mostly it just comes down to if I had been unwilling to do this, there would be so many amazing roles that I've done lately that I wouldn't have gotten to do. And the trade-off is more than adequate for me. Yeah. Hearing you talk about it, which is awesome and I love it. But thinking about what you said, like playing in the sandbox with the Green Army Men, it's like you're playing pretend and you're you're finding that fun and that experience to do for whatever you need to do. And you're just that's your gift and you're able to do it. So it's very cool. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it is, you know, I've just sort of given myself permission to play with the whole gift and not sort of handicap myself. You said you're you're an old punk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The ethos of punk has always been deeply appealing to me. I tell people that one of the freedoms and consequences of a punk rock attitude is that there will be consequences for being a punk. You just have to go, well, but I'm okay with that. The energy of it, but really it was the ethos of like, I'm going to do what I want. You know, not in a selfish way, but like, this feels important to me and I'm going to do it. And the consequences be damned. I'll deal with it. As we let you go, is there anything um, in particular you want fans to listen for as they go through the series? Obviously, that episode three is going to be a fun, juicy one. But anything else you want them to uh, to check out? I, You know, uh, the thing I'm most impressed with is hearing the parts of the story I'm not in. I want fans to check out the whole thing. Isabella Ferreira is doing a knockout job as Sophia. Ashley Atkinson is a lovely human being and doing really fun things as Kitty Pride, And Robert Patrick, God bless Robert Patrick. He worked his tail off. I mean, I was watching him work his tail off in some recording studio in Philadelphia. And it was impressive for the physical nature of what he was doing. But it was also such a gift to play with somebody who was taking it as seriously as I was. Mm -hmm. And that I felt completely unafraid after I had my first moment of like, oh, my God, that's Terminator 2000. And I got that over with. And then it was like, cool, now I'm going to fight you and hopefully I'm going to kill you. You know, it was. But for fans, I would really want them to to really dig in because there's so much good work being done across the board in this show. I'm really enormously proud of it. I would encourage fans to sort of, A, listen to the sum total of the work and then maybe go Find a place that's doing a good Shakespeare or go see Denzel's Scottish play or something like that, because you will find there's a lot of similarities and that good art is timeless. Amen to that. 
Thank you, Rachel. Hey, man. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. I'm legit stoked that I got asked to do this. I think your performance was truly really rad. Thank you. That was awesome, Ryan. And of course, you can listen to all episodes of the podcast right now, wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can get behind the scenes bonus content on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. Man, I love some Shakespeare. I, I'm sad I was out sick that day. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about what's going on next week. So next week, we are going to be having some behind the scenes interviews from Marvel Studios She-Hulk Attorney at Law with a whole bunch of the cast and beyond. So in the spirit of that, we would love to know what was your favorite moment from the first episode of Marvel Studios She-Hulk Attorney at Law. And some gentle spoilers, maybe. But if you don't say Captain America anything, you might be lying. Tatiana Maslany's performance of that last line, I laughed. Like, thank God my bladder is intact, you know? (laughs) Because I was laughing an inappropriate amount. Yeah. I will say, as much as I love all that, I love the cousin relationship that that Bruce and Jen have. I think that is super cool. They play that so well. Also, after watching the first episode, I was like, chopsticks to eat my crunchy snacks. I'd never done that before. That was a revelation. My friend Eric taught me that. And honestly, it's a game changer because you don't get Cheeto fingers. It's amazing. I know. So I've started doing that. Thank you, Marvel Studios, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. (laughs) I'm now using chopsticks. And like my wife turned to me and she goes, what are you doing? I was like, She-Hulk. She goes, oh, right. Smart move. Give me a a crunchy thing. And I'm like, (laughs) use the chopsticks. Give it to her. It all worked out really, really well. There's so many great moments. The fourth wall breaking, just the... The action, it's really damn funny. And honestly, I love the way that the episode kind of unfolds with like a flashback. Mm-hmm. I love you kind of start in the thick of the show and then she's kind of like, listen, you're not going to listen to me until I explain what happened. So let's just like do that real quick. Yeah. And I really love it. Oh, my gosh. How could I not mention? OK, for me as a lady, I know there's nothing like being like the people who are making this like have lived as women but the moment where she goes in the bathroom and all of the women are like hyping her up and doing her makeup and being like you better leave him when she's like stumbled in from the car wreck i was like i love this moment because women hyping each other in the bathroom and like taking care of each other in the bathroom after drinking is so real but then also her like having the converse experience walking out of the bathroom i was like wow this is my entire 20s <laughs> summarized very 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 briefly i love it we want to hear from you you can tweet your answers using hashtag this week in marvel email them to twim podcast at marvel.com or send a message to our facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in marvel and please make sure to tell us if it is okay to read on the show so we can read it on the show Yeah. And speaking of which, let's get into our community section where we're going to talk about our question of the week last week, which was, which Marvel villain would you like to see fight Wolverine? Snick, 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 snick. Tons of great answers. First up was Tony Pizza at BMikeyP, who says, Stilt Man. Wolverine keeps chopping away at them stilts to bring the man down to his level, but those stilts just keep on growing. I like the idea that Stilt Man has infinite stilts. Like, that is the Stilt Man... That I want to see. Like he has some magic in his stilts where they just keep growing. That would be cool. Whoa. 
Our old pal Eric Goldman at the Eric Goldman says, The spot. Claws go in, claws come out. Um, That's fun because it's like a little portal. It's hard to stab somebody who's already Swiss cheese. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually thinking about that one. And so, like, you know, if Wolverine isn't uh, careful, he would just stab himself over and over and over again. <laughs> Martin McGrath at Martin McGrath tweets, One that seems obvious, but that I can only remember being done in Old Man Logan is Craven the Hunter. Not a match for Logan physically, but with strategy and guile, he could give him a fight. Honestly, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Martin, I would say check out the current arc of X-Force comics. Not necessarily Wolverine versus Craven, but maybe Craven versus some mutants who are very close to Wolverine. It's a good series to check out. There you go. Matt Maybray at Matt Maybray said, Turner D. Century and a penny farthing race. Um, wow. Thank you for the deep cut. We'd love to see it. Um, Turner DeCentury, he looks like if Cogsworth became a Marvel character. Just he's got a little mustache and a little boater hat. Wow, he's really wow. If I remember correctly, he's just a rich dude who liked old timey stuff and wanted old timey stuff and just wanted to get back to that. He had some gimmicks and some tech and some stuff, and he was just a jerk. Yeah, yeah. He preached old virtue, the virtues of the old days, but of course is a villain, so you do the math. Um, also, any farthing race, why not? Yeah. He was created in, I would say, like the early 80s or the 70s or something. So, like, the turn of that century would have been the 1900s. But now we're over 20 years from the turn of our century. So he comes in wearing, like, I don't know. A Limp Bizkit t-shirt now. The Turner Decentury of uh, <gasps> our time is, you know. I love it. I love it. Metal. He's like the early aughts. <laughs> oh, new metal wearing like a, one of, a razor a scooter. Phone. A flip phone. Oh. Wow. All right. D Foreman at D Foreman tweets, Venom. He unknowingly cuts off part of the symbiote, absorb it, and becomes every character's worst nightmare. Yeah. Wolverine with Whoa. the symbiote is yeah. bad news. All right, next up, we got Joseph Jameson, grandson of J. Jonah Jameson, <laughs> at Saucier underscore Supreme, who said, not a villain necessarily, but the Magister, the Shatterer, the almighty Karnak. <laughs> Wolverine has so many flaws, but also claws. So I think we'd be in for an amazingly skilled fight with even more masterful existential doom banter. Karnak is like a menace. yeah. He can see the flaw in anything and then exploit it, right? And so he right. he's great at like teaming up with others. But I also, you know, like a more current version of him is he can see the flaw in you and just cut you down verbally. And it's just he would destroy people with his words. It's the way I see it. Poor Wolverine. Would be I don't want to be his friend. No, he's he's nasty. All right, William Landa at Babe Bro tweets, I would love for Wolverine to have a lengthy fight with Mystique. Well, William, you're in luck. You can read the amazing storyline called Get Mystique, which was by Jason Aaron and Ron Garney from like 10 years ago. And it is bloody and brutal and really friggin' great. Go check out Get Mystique, a Wolverine story. Ooh. Next up, we've got Agent 42 at Agent 42, who said, I would like to see Wolverine go up against Quentin Beck Mysterio. Wolvie is so primal that I don't know how he could cope with Mysterio's mind bending illusions. Oh, man, Mysterio better hope he does not get caught because Mysterio 
cannot he he's like fish food man yeah, like yeah. that's a bad day for mysterio if he gets in any sort of like melee range he's oh, done yeah, yeah if mysterio just uses like visual illusions he's done wolverine will smell it out he will use his senses to like cut through that but if mysterio can get past wolverine's sense of smell and sort of like make him do it which there you go. That's what happened in the storyline for the original Old Man Logan storyline. Mysterio tricked Wolverine into killing everyone, all the X-Men. It's heartbreaking. And it's uh, Mysterio who did it. So, yeah, you don't want to go down that road unprepared. Very cool answer. Like that one. And we got a Facebook message from Christopher Pineo who said Wolverine versus Absorbing Man would put Wolverine in a tight spot. Could Absorbing Man take his healing ability? Would Wolverine keep his claws in to avoid the adamantium being absorbed? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't wow. know. Wolverine has gone up against a dude with adamantium skin before, the nasty villain Cyber. And so that's always been a super tricky one. Love that. We also got an email here from Grayson Wozmasensky, which says, Dear Agent M, Lorraine, and maybe James, <laughs> I'm really enjoying the Marvel's Wastelanders Wolverine podcast series. Wolverine, as one of the only Canadian superheroes, has a special part in my heart. Do you know of any other Canadian superheroes? Make mine Marvel, Grayson. P.S. I'm collecting old Marvel comics, 77 so far. Grayson, that's amazing. I love that. There are a lot of Canadian superheroes. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds is the first that comes to mind. No, um, no, but really, let's think. Squirrel Girl? Squirrel Girl? Oh, yeah, she's technically Canadian. Yeah. We also have, I mean, everyone on Alpha Flight, basically. Yeah, if you've never read Alpha Flight, Grayson, that's the perfect place to start. There's like 150 issues of Alpha Flight comics you can read on their own. There's a recent one from our 80th anniversary in 2019 called Alpha Flight True North, which has a bunch of great stories and it gives you a wide sort of array of who these characters are. Specifically, one I want to point out is Puck, who is oh, yeah. just a terrific character. He's like this gymnast, but he's really funny. He's lived this wildlife. Also a Shakespeare illusion. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And we've seen characters like North Star and Aurora become bigger players on the mutant stage in the X-Men comics over the years. Master of the World is a... Alpha Flight villain, but has shown up in like Avengers comics, and he's a, a big old nasty. Wendigo is a Canadian villain that's shown up in Hulk and Spider-Man comics and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's plenty. And our producer, Zachary Goldberg, has so kindly reminded us, if you listen to our episode from April 16th of 2021, it includes an interview with Letterkenny's K. Trevor Wilson. And there are lots of Canadian superheroes mentioned in that episode. So go back and listen to that for a full deep dive into Canadian superheroes. And also, if you love Letterkenny, baby, that's the one to go for. Yeah, for sure. Grayson, I want an update after you check out some of these Canadian characters. Let us know who you dig and uh, what more comics you've got. Yeah. All right, y'all. That is it for us. Let's wrap it up. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Hi, Brad. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Hi, Jill. And special thanks to Turner D. Century. Long may his limp biscuit loving, <laughs> flip phoning. He has a sidekick for sure. Oh, 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 oh. He wears frosted eyeshadow. That was in. Uh, he has long swoopy bangs. 
just thank you. Thank you, Turner Decentury. We love the 2000s. All right, I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Turner Decentury, where we talk about old-timey stuff. Penny Fothing Race. Boater hats. I'm Ryan. Decentury. I'm Lorraine. Decentury. This is Marvel. Decentury. Your Decentury. Decentury.